Welcome to another episode of Pardon My Enthusiasm, a horror podcast. Film, spooks, controversy, death, and crime, where the eerie is discussed. I'm your host, Damaris Montuvar. Today's episode is a follow-up to last week's, making this one Polanski Part 2, The History and Dilemma. So, just as a bit of a refresher, last week we talked about Roman Polanski and Samantha Gamir, the woman that he raped in the 70s. We delve into the case, some of the backlash, and just the up and down over the past many decades. I specifically spoke a lot about Samantha's book, A Girl, A Life in the Shadow of Roman Polanski, that came out in 2013, but this week, we're going to really look at Roman specifically. We are actually at the part I was most nervous about. While discussing the rape and sexual accusations against Roman Polanski was difficult, something about having to look at his past and experiencing sympathy was much worse. Roman Polanski is a loaded story that asks a lot from society and modern culture. Now that we're familiar with his controversy and crime, we can look at his childhood during the Holocaust and the following years, and two of his films. Rosemary's Baby, 1968, released before two big events in his life, the murder of his pregnant wife, Sharon Tate, and the sexual assault. The Pianist, 2002, released after the two events. It is important to understand his life in order to understand why so many stood behind him for so long and why so many still do. Countless comments about how he has suffered enough, but is that how you measure a person's pain? Can his life excuse his actions? And the big question comes back, can his work be judged separately from him? The two films we'll be discussing are the films I'm most familiar with, and they fit into this analysis I would like to conduct, because one was done before and one after. So, let's give it a go. Just as a bit of a side note as well, this episode is coming out late. I mean, at this point, I have like, what, 20 listeners and y'all all know me, but uh, it's just kind of been a bit of a floppy week for me, I guess. And then I had a really, really mean migraine, which meant that I could do nothing. I just sat down, you know, the shutters were all down. I'm just snuggled up drinking tea and watching very quietly, all the way dimmed, Sailor Moon to make myself feel better. Usually I like to release on Tuesdays. This will likely be coming out Wednesday late in the evening, seeing as it's 9.30 p.m. and I'm just not recording it on the Wednesday. So thank you for your patience. Roman Polanski was born August 18, 1933 to the name Raymond Thierry Liebling. His parents were Beulah and Moises Liebling. Bila was born in Russia, and she often went by Bella, with a half-and-half Roman Catholic and Jewish upbringing. She had a daughter from a previous marriage, Roman's half-sister, Annette. Roman's father, after World War II, although some unauthorized biographies say he changed his name before the war, went by Arizarde, oof, um, thank you, Polanski, on exactly why the change was made is also not given a straight answer. Honestly, so much of the information here conflicts with each other, especially regarding the names, but not in a way that's entirely relevant. In 1937, the family decided to move back to Krakow, 
a city in Poland. Primarily, it's cited as occurring because Paris was becoming too expensive. And on kind of a side note, Krakow is super rad. And if you ever get the opportunity, go. It, uh, literally just walked around aimlessly for hours. I found this like piano lounge and because the money or the currency is in your favor if you live in Europe as I do or even the United States, it's a super affordable place to go. You know, once everything's lifted and you know, people need tourism, but back to it. Regardless of exactly why, it proved detrimental to the family because September 1st, 1939, Nazi Germany began their invasion of Poland. And on September 6th, Krakow was Germany's. For the sake of making sure we cover everything, a prominent event during World War II was the Holocaust, where roughly 6 million Jewish people died. And that does not include other minorities that were targeted or the total casualties of the war. Jews have a long history of being targeted for nonsensical reasons. And in this case, Adolf Hitler saw a future where Germany was supreme and Aryan people governed and stuff. Before people started really being relocated to concentration camps, they were resettled within their own city to Jewish ghettos away from the Germans being trucked over. This included the Polanski family, with Roman being expelled from his school and missing out on his studies for the next six years. Another hardship during this time was that Jews over the age of 12 had to wear a Star of David band on their arm. Just another way for Germans during this time to easily discriminate people by. I'm an overly nervous person, and since I moved to Germany, anytime I watch or listen, or especially these episodes, since they have things to do with the Nazi Germany era, I close all my windows, I lower my voice. You will not catch me saying Nazi outside of my house. And even then I'm like, Nazi. Like I'm just, I, I know I'm not going to get in trouble. You only get in trouble if you call someone it, not just for saying it. But it's just not a fun conversation to have. I've been in situations where people are just like, I don't know, you guys always bring it up. And I'm like, I literally didn't. I like don't even know what's happening. So just a little tidbit about me, I guess. Sorry, I keep veering off. I think it's how I'm compartmentalizing all of this for myself. But next will be a graphic quote from Perlansky about his experience during the movement into the Jewish ghetto. So hold on to your butt. I had just been visiting my grandmother when I received a foretaste of things to come. At first, I didn't know what was happening. I simply saw people scattering in all directions. Then I realized why the street had become emptied so quickly. Some women were being herded along it by German soldiers. Instead of running away like the rest, I felt compelled to watch. One older woman at the rear of the column couldn't keep up. A German officer kept prodding her back into line, but she fell down on all fours. Suddenly, a pistol appeared in the officer's hand. There was a loud bang and blood came welling out of her back. I ran straight into the nearest building, squeezed into a smelly recess beneath some wooden stairs, and didn't come out for hours. I developed a strange habit, clenching my fists so hard that my palms became permanently calloused. I also woke up one morning to find that I had wet my bed. This is from Roman by Polanski, 1985. His father was sent to Mauthausen, 
in concentration camp in Austria while his mother was sent to Auschwitz, where she seems to have been killed shortly after her arrival. I have been to Auschwitz when I visited Krakow. It was a trip I took with one of my younger brothers. It was like a, like a day thing. Bus picked us up from where I live. It's about eight hours away. We went to the camp and then to Krakow, but Auschwitz was rough. Uh, I think I expected it to be worse, but I'm also a little bit of an annoying tough girl about things. What actually pissed me off most was the people around me. Specifically, in the tour bus I had taken, there was a family that had their selfie stick and kept taking selfies at Auschwitz. They were smiling and grasping each other, and it was infuriating. I couldn't help myself. I was angry. I just desperately angry watching them and my face doesn't really lie I have daggers for eyes that's one of the nice things about having such big eyes I was just be just I I don't even have the words I don't understand how people behave that way but overall it's a very interesting and painful experience we went to two different sections um, where the people were brought in they still had one of the train carts and we also went to the main areas with the bunkers and the guest chambers and we just walked around the tour was about three hours or so there's much longer ones and the thing that actually really hit me the wrong way was they still had collections of stuff just suitcases mementos and they had a giant pile of shoes just shoes so many shoes and it it just struck me in a sort of way and in an adjacent room they had hair it's just a massive pile of hair and I of course just kind of kept to myself but it even just thinking about it right now, it's a very difficult image to think back to. Um, my little brother took pictures of things and, you know, he was respectful also because he knew I would have kicked his ass otherwise, but I, I just couldn't. It was just, it didn't feel right for me. Uh, we, are, my family background is Jewish in part. My father's father I believe uh, the last name is Zion but I don't know too much about that family I've often been told that my nose is what lets people know that uh, there's a little a little Jewish in me and my brother literally spitting image just he's, he's our little Jew boy which I don't know how appropriate that is but amongst us it's obviously just a little joke but it was always just a playful thing because I wasn't raised practicing it's just a genetic thing but being there was just strange. Not necessarily that I had a connection because my family would have emigrated literally like forever before that down to Guatemala, but it's a hard experience. It's an important experience. And you have, if you have the opportunity, I would say go. It's going to be rough. It's rougher for some people than others, but it's important 
The gas chambers didn't make me quite as uncomfortable as the stuff did. I think it's because they're so barren. There wasn't much in them. The buildings were pretty crumbled. But stuff. That was, that was people stuff. Cool, cool. My face has been wiped. I drink a little water. Had to take off my glasses, but we're back at it. So, as the Jewish population dwindled in the area, the Aryan areas grew and the Jewish ghettos got smaller. Polanski was alone, so he escaped the Krakow ghetto in 1943 and sought shelter and assistance wherever he could, including Polish Roman Catholics and family friends. This was not a permanent solution, and while Polanski as a child could get away with maybe not being Jewish, he was a pretty, he's a pretty white-looking brother. I, that was kind of a weird statement, but anywho, at some point, he was alone again because of fear of death for helping a Jew for some people because that's just, it's a hard ask. I, I get that. But Palancia has given various interviews about his struggles to survive during this time. There are many reports of the type of cruel acts committed by German soldiers. And even as a child, he was not immune to them. He has stated being shot at for target practice and seeing consistent violent death. World War II ended in 1945, and the genocide was over. Roman was reunited with his father, but life does not just go back after an existence like that. His father remarried, and Roman moved on in life, a life that would inevitably lead him to Hollywood. Roman mentioned that he had always been a fan of going to the cinema, even enjoying the propaganda shown by the Germans in the Krakow streets, because a movie was still a movie. After the war, he kept with his habits, watching movies anytime he had the opportunity. He stated that he'd be like, ah oh, man, I got extra change, I'm going to the movie. And while now it's like, what, 10 bucks for a ticket? That was definitely not the case then. His education consists of attending the National Film School in Lodz, Poland, graduating in 1959, and where his short films got a lot of recognition. His first full-length film was Knife in the Water, 1962, and it got him his legit big recognition. He won his first Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film in 1963, as well as being praised and becoming a success in Poland. I mean, you have to think about it. His first film, he, he freaking won an Oscar. That's like bonks. And it's significant in Poland because of how large the film became and also because it was one of the first films that came out of Poland during that time that didn't have anything to do with the war. He left for France and began to really get into his filmmaking. After Knife in the Water, Polanski made three more films before the film we'll be looking at more closely, Rosemary's Baby, 1968. The 70s were a big time for him as well, with films like Chinatown, 1974. In the 80s was Pirates, 1986, a film discussed in last week's episode. Jumping to the 2000s, because I don't really know any of his films from the 90s. Oh wait, that one movie, The Ninth Gate or something, with Johnny Depp, I think it was like 98. That one. But anyway, 2000s. The next film that we will be focusing on, well, it's The Pianist, 2002. He's made many more films since then, directing, producing, writing, but we really want to look at one before and one after. 
A brief look at Roman Polanski's relationship with Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate was born in Dallas, Texas, January 24th, 1943. Her career was a little bit of an overnight success, or I guess best put, she began with modeling and small television roles in the early 60s, and by the mid-60s, she was kind of a star. She had befriended the right people and made promising connections. I mean, she had that like Southern Belle kind of stuff, so people liked her. And these connections included Roman Polanski. The pair met while filming The Fearless Vampire Killers, 1967, also known as The Dance of the Vampires. And by January 20th, 1968, the pair had married in London. Making a move back to Hollywood somewhere around October or November 1968, Sharon became pregnant. Tate and Polanski kept working, and in August 1969, Roman was meant to return from shooting in London to be at the birth, but a supposed few days before the arrival, Sharon, eight plus months pregnant, along with three friends and a young man visiting the property, were murdered by the Manson family in an event to be remembered as the Tate murders or the Tate LaBianca murders, since another pair had been killed by the family in a different location within the same few days. Polanski has mentioned in interviews and his autobiography how much this impacted the way he viewed life and the press, stating that he wishes he could have been there because you never know what you could have done to help. There are all kinds of speculations about their relationship and their home life. He was gone a lot, and Tate was often accompanied by her ex-boyfriend and longtime friend, Jay Sebring, a hairstylist to the stars, and one of the victims of the big murder. Whatever their life seemed to be to the public, this was another hit to the man that held so much of people's sympathy. Not only did he endure the Holocaust, but his wife and an unborn baby were brutally murdered. And now we round back to media. Obviously, this case is dense with media and film because the man of the hour is a film director, but not only does his does he have work out there but his life is something that is constantly getting refreshed most recently his misery was rehashed in once upon a time in hollywood 2019 which does not focus on him but you can't have sharon without roman we'll begin with 1986 rosemary's baby a film i have long been obsessed with the first time i saw it i was probably about 14 or so and I thought it was so fucking long. A very long film that I could not stop thinking about. It stars Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes, along with many others. Based off the 1967 novel of the same name by Irene Levine, the film was, and still is, a huge success, going as far as being preserved by the National Film Registry because of its utter significance. The story follows Rosemary and Guy Woodhouse as they rent an apartment in the cursed but beautiful, gothic-styled Bramford Building in New York City in 1965. The French Hutch, French Hutch, why was that hard, tells them about how that building has a long history with witchcraft. Once there, Rosemary befriends a young woman, Terry, who lives with a couple in the apartment next to theirs. They bond over the scary laundry room and the odd smell coming from Terry's pendant, given to her by the neighbors, the Cassavets. 
Shortly after, Terry's body is found on the pavement. She had apparently jumped from that seventh floor apartment that she was living at. You know, the one adjacent to Rosemary's. Rosemary, in an effort to be polite, when she sees the Katsovitz, lets them know how fondly Terry spoke of them. So the Katsovitz begin to befriend the young couple. Rosemary doesn't really bite, finding many Kasovit nosy, but Guy is fond of Roman Kasovit and his grand tales, so he keeps at it. This gives Minnie the impression that her and Rosemary will be friends too, so she gives her the pendant Terry had been wearing, which is, you know, spooky. Guy had been shown struggling to get his big break as an actor, and out of nowhere, the person who had landed a role he wanted went blind landing him the role. Rosemary had expressed wanting for a child, and now that Guy had his career going, he was in. They planned out their conception night, and after a romantic meal, and a chalky chocolate dessert from Minnie that Rosemary did not finish, she passes out, and she walks into a creepy dream. She's nude and being watched by Guy, the Kasovitz, and other people that she had seen in the building. Well, having a demonic creature, rape her. The following morning, Guy apologizes for going ahead without her. Gross. And life kind of moves on from there. Seeing as Guy had sex with her while she was unconscious, Rosemary finds out that she's pregnant and the Kasovitz refer her to a big-name doctor and personal friend of theirs, Dr. Abraham Saperstein. Rosemary has a rough first trimester, filled with abdominal pain and weight loss. Minnie makes her a morning drink with fresh herbs, recommended by the doctor, instead of taking prenatal pills. Hutch comes by to see her and expresses concern over how she looks. Roman drops by just about the same time and is not a fan of Hutch and everything he's saying about how Rosemary's not looking too swell. So he abruptly leaves. Suddenly, Guy walks in, still in makeup from rehearsal, and the three share a short talk. Hutch calls to let Rosemary know that he has something to tell her and that they need to meet immediately, but he fails to show. She gives him a call and learns that he fell into a mysterious coma. Rosemary discusses her situation with her friends about the pain, the weight loss, and decides to go back to her original OB, Dr. Hale. Guy thinks this would offend Dr. Saperstein and the cast of it, and so they begin to argue. Just then, Rosemary is elated to find out that her pain is gone, and the baby has begun moving. Three months go by in bliss when Rosemary gets a call that Hutch has died. She attends the funeral and is given a package that he had for her. It's a book on witchcraft, along with the message the name is an anagram. Rosemary begins to study this and comes to find that Roman Cassavet is an anagram for Stephen Marcato, the son of a known Satanist that used to live in the very building. She learns of rituals and begins connecting dots from her surroundings, like the man who went blind and Hutch's death. Each had something missing from there, from them, and then something bad happened. Guy calls it nonsense and throws the book away, but it does not detract Rosemary's suspicion of Roman and Dr. Saperstein. Saperstein! If anything, she begins to think that Guy is in on it too, 
and that the baby's going to be sacrificed in some way. Rosemary frantically visits Dr. Hill, who betrays her to Dr. Saperstein and Guy. Rosemary gets away and hides in her apartment, but there's a secret way in. You see, the apartment originally was, I guess, like the whole floor, or at least the apartment that was her and Guy's and the Cassavids used to be one big boy. So there was a hall that had been closed off, but nothing's permanent. When they make their way in, they sedate her and force her into labor. She's told that the babies are stillborn, but as they tend to her, they make her pump breast milk and she hears a baby crying. Rosemary refuses to believe her baby is dead, so one night she sneaks into the Cassavitz through that hidden doorway and finds them having a gathering, guy in attendance, and a big black bassinet. She approaches the baby, only to scream, asking what's wrong with her baby's eyes. Roman tells her he has his father's eyes and that the father was Satan. Guy tries to convince her that this was all worth it because of his newfound success and that they could always try for another baby on their own later. But Rosemary is all too disturbed and spits in his face. Thank you. The baby keeps crying and before she knows it, she offers to tend to the boy. The film closes with her rocking the baby in his bassinet. And off goes a lullaby. The film won 10 awards, not including the mega honor of having been inducted into the National Film Registry, of course. It was Roman Polanski's American film debut, but aside from the success, it's often referred to as a foreshadowing to what Roman's life would become. The following year is when Sharon Tate was murdered, and we all know at least one of those people that believe horror and thrill thriller films invite evil into your life. Literally, that's exactly my childhood. I was always very interested in horror films, and my parents were just like, you're just inviting demons into my house. I don't know why I gave them that accent, because my dad has a, a Hispanic accent, and well, my mom grew up in California, but all the same. I get it. I feel you, and I believe in that karma shit, but, you know, I still like my spooky movies. And, well, Rosemary's Baby made his American success and it set him for popularity that became sympathy after being widowed. Next we talk about The Pianist 2002, an adaption of the autobiographical book of the same name from 1946 about composer Vladislaw Spielmann. Why did I say that? Vladislaw Spielmann, who survived the Holocaust. I made sure to rewatch the film since it's been a few years, and I read the actual book as well. The film follows Vlad and the entire Spielman family through a brief time before they were forced into the Jewish ghettos in Warsaw. It opens up tragically, really setting you up for the experience. Vlad is playing the piano for the radio station he works at as they're being bombed. The progression between his playing and the station windows being broken is quite the visual. We follow the family through the first few years of brutality in the ghetto before the entire family is set to be transported to the Tilipinka. Treblinka. God, I hate that I have to say things that way. Treblinka termination camp. Vlad, good with connections and an overall well-liked person is pulled right before boarding and is told to split 
separating him from his family. The following scene is rough because Vlad is the last Spielmann in Warsaw, walking through the empty streets crying for his family. He struggles to sustain himself, coming close to barely surviving, and we, as the viewers, sit through it with him. He finally gets a job deconstructing the wall around some of the ghetto and is able to send a message to his friends, asking for help. While he waits for replies, he assists in smuggling weapons into the ghetto for the resistance. He finally gets word that someone can help him and he escapes, eventually landing an empty apartment near the Warsaw ghetto. From there, he can see the Warsaw uprising. The apartment had a piano, but he could not play it in fear of being heard by the neighbors, but his friends came by as often as they could with supplies and news of the war. At some point, a man helping the underground is put in charge of checking in on him more frequently. He's coming was very inconsistent, and he often failed to bring enough food. Spielman gives him a family watch to sell for supplies and asks for help because he believes he's jaundice. The man never returns, and once his friends are able to come back, they tell him that that man had been collecting money on Spielman's behalf all throughout the city, and he left with everything. He is forced to flee after being discovered by his neighbors, and thus began his long journey for an even harder survival. Warsaw is being destroyed by the war, and Spielman frantically finds shelter and food in the ruins. He finds a giant can, and while trying to open it, he drops it, and it rolls over to a Wehrmacht officer. I really hope I said that right. Um, the man is oddly kind and asks what he does for a living, to which Spielman discloses that he's a pianist. The officer leads him to a piano where he plays Chopin's Ballade in G minor. The officer is moved and he allows him to keep hiding in the attic, regularly supplying him with food and news of the war. Come January 1945, the Germans retreat because of Russia. The officer and Spielman speak for the last time. The officer gives him his coat and Spielman gives him his name. He hears an announcement that they are free and so he runs out and is immediately attacked because of his German coat. But upon inspection, they help him. Spring comes and people in the camps are being released, walking by a bunch of captured German soldiers. A violinist begins to yell at them, stating, you know, I, I'm literally a violinist. Why? Why would you do? I'm literally super cool, which is true. And the man replies back, asking if he knew Spielman. He says yes. And the officer asks for him to give a message to Spielman that he needs help, that he helped him and if he could do anything. The film closes with Spielman and his violinist friend going back to where that encounter occurred, but they found nothing. Spielman went back to his work at the Polish radio, playing piano, and the film ends with a note on Vlad's death. In 2000, at 88 years old. And that the officer who helped him was Willem Holsenfeld, who died in 1952, age 57, having been a captive of the Soviets. The book and film are very similar. The movie is about two and a half hours long, but of course it could not fulfill the entire book. The primary differences are actually the order 
of events. The book really just kind of jumps into everything that's happening versus the slower build. One scene that always got me in the film, and it got me just as bad and awkwardly in the book, was them explaining little Jewish kids going under the wall and bringing things back, and that one little boy was getting pulled back by the German soldiers, and so Vlad goes to try and help him, and he's pulling on the little boy's arms to grab him, but he's being beaten, and by the time he's able to pull him through, he realizes that his back has been severely shattered. Whenever I saw this scene in the film, I was never quite sure what the child had died of. I Maybe it's just me trying to, being naive and trying not to think about it, but something about reading it, they're like, his back had just been super beaten and he died. And Vlad also just kind of being, he was like, it sucked. And then I left and that was just such a normal part of his reality. It was creepy. It was, it was really rough. Um, but overall, it, even small details, like in front of like the Jewish police station or whatever, there was a man who joked around and acted silly and so the German soldiers would give him stuff because he was funny and that's something in the book. I mean, it's minor. He just says, there's a dude there, plays funny. I wonder if he's actually dumb or if he's just smarter than everyone and plays this way and minor detail that was in it. A lot of attention was really played for this. It, the film was just sad and the family leaves and they go on the, the train it's just, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm very just like fixated on, it was sad, it's a very sad book, they, they go and he's so heartbroken and he wants to be with them and his dad sees that he's on the other side and he's telling them that he needs, he just needs to go, he's like, just, just fucking do it man, survive for us because we're obviously not and there's one thing that I kind of wish they would have included in the film, it's, it's small too, when he was deconstructing the wall and they could see into the Aryan areas, he ran into someone he knew who was Jewish, but it, this brother looked very white and so he passed it off. He gave him a hug and Vlad told him that his family had been taken and the dude straight up is like, look, you need to know the truth. They're dead. Everyone who leaves there, they're dead. Your, your family's dead. And Vlad expresses being very conflicted about how he felt because part of him was like, dude, what the fuck? Like, why would you say that to me? What is keeping me going is dreaming of being with my family. He often discussed being torn because he knew that they were probably experiencing the same kind of abuse he was, but at least they were alive. And now being reassured that they're dead, he's just like, what is supposed to keep me going? But that made him find a reason to keep going. It's a rough thing to think about, but I mean, he lived. He was the only one in his family to have lived. The entire book was oddly comedic. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a hard topic. It's hard things he spoke about. But again, he was just like very nonchalant in some spots. I, uh, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard because part of me was like, this is not light material. Why are you so chill? But on the other hand, I get having to be chill to function. And he just tosses little jokes and quirks and 
it really made the reading experience a lot easier to manage having it be that way. Through the entire book, he's consistently worried about his hands. Just literally littered <laughs> the chapters. He's like, ah, oh, man, I was so worried this is going to mess up my hands because if it messes up my hands, you know, he had to do a lot of physical labor and he meticulously tried doing things that wouldn't affect his hands or when winter was coming and he didn't have a big coat to cover him. I mean, it's not a good thing, but he injured his leg and had to be put in an indoor job, which he was worried that he was going to get executed for that. But he was relieved that his fingers couldn't get frostbite because, you know, that'd be the end of that. And that became his new dream. He's like, I'm going to play the piano when this is over. And brother, did he do just that? Biographies aren't really my thing. They make me very uncomfortable and sad, but I would recommend reading this. It's not a hard book. It's about 230 pages and it's sad but it's it's not hard to go through because of the way he wrote it I know in the preface preface is that whatever his son said that his father wrote it for himself and that he was the one who I guess had persuaded him to publish it and that you really get that sense that it's it's a journal entry not necessarily a memoir and that's what makes it so much easier to read. The one thing that oddly pissed me off about the difference between the film and the book is that in the book, Vlad says he did play Chopin, but it was Nocturne in C-sharp minor. And for whatever reason, that really irks me. I'm like, brother, it's not that hard to stick with it. And I mean, Nocturne's good. It's one of the songs that I had thought about for the opening of my podcast and then I just decided to play the piano myself but I'm just like why why do you have to make that change like I, I don't understand the pianist was an absolute hit the, the movie more than the book but it became critically acclaimed and people acclaimed literally everyone loved it it got so much recognition that the awards it won and was nominated for had its complete own Wikipedia page. At the Academy Awards, it won Best Actor for Adrian Brody, who played Vlad, and Best Director for Polanski, Best Adapted Screenplay to Ronald Harwood, along with 19 other awards, many going to Brody and Polanski. The story is so important, and while I, again, would super recommend reading the book, the film being created is just as important because not everyone reads. I mean, I watched the film multiple times before I ever finally read the book. There are many World War II films and Holocaust films, but off the top of my head, I can think of way more films that focus on the battles and war than on the people directly affected. I know a tender one is The Boy in the Striped Pajama, 2008, and of course, Schindler's List, 1993. Out of the true two, Schindler's List, or Schindler's Ark for the 1982 book, is better since it too is biographical, and The Boy in the Striped Pajamas is, was written by like some dude in Ireland and often gets criticized for being a little... Furufuru? Also, do you say furufuru? Because my partner was giving me crap for saying furufuru, and I think it's, I think it makes perfect sense, but back to this. While there is creative freedom, the stories at their core 
I can especially say for the pianist since I read it, are truth and thus should be respected for it. And this is why we face the question of, do we judge the man and the art separately? Should someone else have directed? Sure, why not? It's an easy answer that fixes the issue of having to pick, but would it have been what it is? I mean, he lived through it. It was not just the retelling of a memoir, but it was a personal project, I'd have to imagine. And we'll never really know. I mean, I guess they could have gotten another person who experienced it, but there's just too many things to just figure out a simple answer. And looking at Rosemary's Baby, it obviously doesn't have the same kind of impact, but it was also big for what it was. It really set a different kind of scene. It brought in a whole different wave of film. I mean, it was culturally significant in its way. It, you have to watch it. And I feel icky when I watch it sometimes because I remember and I'm always caught. I think that's why I don't have a copy of it. I used to, a German copy, which does not play in my US player. But I always feel weird when I want to buy it because I don't want to help. But also, I can't help but love that film. And same I guess kind of goes for the pianist I definitely don't want to watch it as much as I want to watch Rosemary's Baby because it's a hard watch it's a very very hard watch but it's important you know I remember my mom told me that she went on a school field trip to watch Schindler's List and that it was a very important moment for her something of that nature and it was for me too when I first watched it and having the opportunity to show it to my partner for the first time, it's just one of those, like, wow, you need to watch this. Now, Samantha Gamier really thinks it should be separate, the comparison, or so she explains in her book, but just because she's attached to him in the way that they are doesn't make this correct. But I have a hard time saying that she's like completely wrong very like new not neutral because I have an opinion it's just like there isn't an answer to my opinion in theory just don't hire him done the question is over and if she really does not want him to be persecuted or prosecuted whatever cool cool can he come back to the states perhaps not and they'll just have to get over it but it's undeniable that he is a talented director it's annoying but true, especially when you look at the newer accusations and you look at how his current wife is having to deal with a lot of, like people still want her, but they don't want him and their daughter, Morgan, she's acting. And when I looked her up, one of the first things was an interview where she's like, no, I'm not going to change my last name. That's, he's my dad, you know? And it's, I get it. I get it that his wife is always saying, whoever he was then, that's not who he is now. And there's always the question of the cultural thing that in like Paris, while it still wasn't legal to have sex with a 13 year old, they do have a different uh, relationship with sexuality in general in Europe. Like you'll see more boobies around and like, a, I love going to Berlin 
before the pandemic I would go about once a month and they just have like posters of boobs and penises and stuff just like chilling that's just kind of how it is in Europe so I get that difference but eh, I don't know does it make it okay does the time make it okay which I mean obviously it was still a rape then in the 70s but everyone was more chill about things I mean I mentioned was it Jodie Foster and Brooke Shields having very scandalous things uh, what's that one movie um into the blue lagoon or the blue lagoon i don't remember my mom used to watch when i was a kid though and she was like she was like 15 and homegirl literally had hair covering her boobs it's it's weird to look back at those kind of things and is that why he thought it was cool like I, i'm sure some part of him didn't and obviously after having children it really hit him but uh, well no reason will ever be a good excuse should we just listen to samantha and let it be just work like the pianist forgive what's happened no it doesn't but it does it somehow make it chill chill i'm losing that word is losing meaning for me the pianist was an important story to tell he was chosen for his capabilities and for his attachment to what that struggle was and it's an incredible film regardless of who he was I don't think you have to pick completely I think there's a in the middle yes it disturbs me the two films that I very much like were directed by him yes I understand why he was chosen and why they're significant I suppose or whatever personally big picturely but I can still find him gross it's I don't know I, I'm very big-ish on forgiving and moving on and trying not to judge things based off my period but it's hard to not be mad about this it's hard to not be grossed out by this he raped a 13 year old girl and if all the new accusations are to be believed he's kind of an abuser for a long time and I definitely believe it's one of those well I'm a star and I don't have to do anything I don't have to worry about anyone because that's just unfortunately how it is and I don't know part of me thinks it should be dropped that they should stop chasing after him because it does feel like a waste they're not going to get him if he doesn't want to be gotten he's not going to be gotten and there's so many bigger things to worry about in the United States than Roman Polanski. But I also feel icky knowing he's still making films. I guess what it should, what it is for me is I agree with the Academy Awards that he has been expelled and he is not eligible to win stuff. But also they still let him win in 2002. But whatever we've moved on we've grown up he should not be allowed to keep at it and I don't necessarily think people should want to work with him but I get that in Poland and in France he's still like people still love him and to each their own I guess and that's their shit and if he's gonna keep making films over there I'm not gonna say anything it literally has nothing to do with me but as an American I guess I just don't want him to have anything to do with the States. And that's the only clear way 
I have. That's like the only real opinion it's narrowed down to. I don't think Roman Polanski should be allowed back in the United States. I do not believe Roman Polanski should be allowed to participate in things within the United States. I don't think people should work with him, especially in, from the United States. But I also don't think this is important enough to continue the big pursuit after I mean, if Samantha's really over it, that's okay. But if he does something, we're literally going to, like, punch him down. And I guess that's how it goes. But Rosemary's Baby is significant and still a good film. And The Pianist is significant and still a good film. So while it's okay for me to go, Wah! when I watch them, I'm not going to kick myself for watching them. Just to backtrack slightly, last week I mentioned a documentary, Roman Polanski Wanted and Desired, which I really wanted to watch. There's actually a follow-up as well. I couldn't get my hands on it. It's it's reasonably widely available. It was available on, what's she called, uh, YouTube, on Prime, and Google, but Google Play just straight up did not give me the option to rent it. And Amazon DE was like, our information's American. And Amazon.com was like, you live in Europe. And pretty much the same thing with YouTube. So um, I didn't get to watch it. I just watched a bunch of clips. And they weren't really that helpful. But I felt like I needed to say something. We have discussed some hard questions, you guys. And uh, bro, I'm, I'm still game for back and forth. You know, something you can just think about on your own. But... I guess that's how I feel a bit. Yeah, I feel about it. But how do you feel about it? As always, thank you so very much for your time. And if you are ever so inclined, please follow me on Instagram at pardonmyenthusiasm.podcast, Facebook at pardonmyenthusiasm.podcast, and Twitter at pardonmepod.